Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that all of your word is inspired. It is all your word. Uh, And we thank you for the incredible richness of the scriptures, for the way uh, we hear about you and uh, read about you in poetry, in history, in letters, and in all these different uh, ways. And we pray now as we look to the Old Testament that you'll help us to understand it correctly, and in particular, uh, that you will show us how it points us forward to our Lord Jesus and challenges us as to how we will live for him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Other than uh, Jesus, who I'm just sort of assuming you accept as the most important person in the Bible and the most important person in history, other than Jesus, I think probably the most important person in the Bible and therefore in all of history is King David. Uh, I don't think there is anyone other than Jesus who is as important as him. You might mount a case maybe for Abraham or for Moses, maybe for the Apostle Paul, but I think other than Jesus, David is it. Uh, Now, there's lots of reasons why David is so important, and in particular, why people sort of connect with David. And I think one of the main reasons is because of the Psalms. So in the, David wrote most of the Psalms, if you didn't know that. Uh, So he is the person responsible for probably the most incredible insight into how you should relate to God as your father. And so the Psalms, more than any other part of the Bible, perhaps, have influenced people and just become part of our culture. So people know David and love David because of that. But more than that, I think David's life is just one of the great stories. Uh, Whenever I am sort of off the cuff asked to step into any form of children's ministry involving boys, I turn to David. That's where I go. And usually it's David and Goliath. So when Troy asked, what is your favourite story from the Old Testament? There it is, David and Goliath. And I found it intriguing that people who are wanting to stop scripture in schools picked David and Goliath as the story. They go, can you believe our children are taught about murder? And don't they know what our children watch on television? You, you know, like, they're like, there's a story where a guy cuts off another guy's head. And it's like, well, do you know what they watch at four o'clock on television and they get home from school anyway? But anyway, I love David and Goliath. And so right throughout history, David has been this incredible sort of figure, not just for Christians, but for all people. Uh, people know David and artists have focused on David and so if you go into any art gallery you will find pictures and sculptures of David so if we go to our first one this is probably the most famous sculpture I don't know why sculptures can't sculpt clothes but anyway um, uh, it must be really hard to get clothing right but anyway that is the most famous sculpture in history and who is it of David by Michelangelo Uh, if you go into any art gallery you'll see other ones what's our next one up there Natani that is David with the head of Goliath isn't that great you said someone might think, oh, the, the other person's broken, the other sculpture's broken. No, it's meant to be like that. That's his head uh, after he's cut it off with Goliath's big sword. You know, that's uh, that great moment in the story. Uh, when I go to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, there's one painting I go and look at every time I go there, and it's the painting of David standing on a lion cradling a lamb. Has anyone else seen that painting at the Art Gallery? That is not it, but... I couldn't find that painting. Uh, That's sort of like the Reader's Digest children's Bible version of it. But that's all I could find online. I couldn't find that picture. Uh, But whenever I, if I'm at the art gallery for any reason at all, I go into one of the things and find that picture of David killing the lion and cradling the lamb. There's another great picture there of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, but you can find that one next time you're there as well. Uh, There's just something about David, though, and his story that has captured people's attention for thousands of years. Uh, and it's captured their imagination, even if they're not Christian. 
uh, which is why I've been looking forward so much this term to looking at 2 Samuel. It's actually always, every year I schedule one sermon series at least on the Old Testament and it's always the one I look forward to the most. Uh, I love preaching the Old Testament. I don't know whether you love listening to it or not, but that's, that's up for you. But anyway, uh, but I've been looking forward to 2 Samuel. You might remember we looked at 1 Samuel a couple of weeks ago. I said that this morning and all these people just looked blankly at me and I thought, is that how you remember my preaching? But there you are. Uh, we looked at 1 Samuel a couple of years ago. Now we're moving on into stage 2 of the story. Uh, and really it just flows on, 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel. And the big reason I've been looking forward to this and the reason I love looking at this part of the scriptures uh, is because I'm hoping the same thing that happens to me when I read this happens to you. And what that is, is it just reminds you of how wonderful the Bible is and just how great it is to read the Bible. People have this picture that, oh, why would I sit down and read a boring old religious thing like the Bible. This is a better story than you'll find in any TV show or any novel you can read. So I'm hoping this, if it does nothing else, just excites you about the Bible and kindles or rekindles in you that love of reading God's Word. Uh, Because this isn't just a story about a great man. If you are a Christian, this is your history. That's what this is. This isn't some sort of academic events that happened 2,000 years ago. This is our history because it's the history, the Old Testament is the history of God dealing with humanity to save a people for himself. So as we read this, this isn't theory. It's not just sort of history like you learn at school. This is your history, your family history. Uh, And this book is one of the most massive moments in our family history. But even more than all of that, there's another reason we need to know about David. There's another reason David is so important and it's because you need to understand David if you are going to understand Jesus. If you know nothing about David, then you have an anemic, impoverished view of Jesus. You have to know about David to understand properly who Jesus is. And you see that in the very first verse of the New Testament. It should come up on the screen, it's also on your outlines. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he's saying, this is what we're talking about, it's the historical record of Jesus Christ the son of David. That's the first thing he wants you to know about Jesus because it's so significant. David is actually the key to understanding who Jesus claimed to be. When people do Christianity explain with me, one of the questions that always comes is why do just random people call out when Jesus is walking past, son of David? Why do they do that? And it's because you have to understand that Jesus is the great, 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 whatever it is, grandson of David, if you're going to understand who Jesus is. And so that's sort of my other hope for these studies. Besides getting you excited about reading the Bible, my other hope is that you'll see Jesus better as we look at David. That's my other hope. And in particular, you'll see the wonderful way that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Because I find when people get that, when people understand that, it just brings the Bible alive for them. So that's, does that sound all right? That's what we're going to do. That's my hope. A couple of people nodded. No one shook their head. So I think that sounds all right. There we go. Well, as we start, we need to have a quick catch up of the story so far. A bit like when you're watching a season two of a TV show and they have that three minutes previously in season one, you know, and you go, oh, that's right, that's everything that happened in 14 hours last time in three minutes. I'm going to do that for you previously in 1 Samuel now. At this point, big thing you've got to remember is God's people are in God's promised land. So 
That's the first thing you've got to remember about the story so far. They're already in the promised land. They've been saved out of slavery in Egypt. They've wandered around in the desert, getting up to no good and all sorts of things. But eventually, they've been able to defeat, sort of, their enemies and go into the promised land and take possession of it. But they have enemies all around them who are attacking them all the time. So you've got the Philistines, you've got the Amalekites, you've got the Edomites and every other iron and ite you can think of. And God, though, is looking after them. So they have these enemies, but God gives them victory over their enemies. And the way it's set up is God is their king and their general. So when they march into battle, ignoring God, it doesn't matter how many men they've got, they lose. But when they march in doing what God tells them to do, even if they're absolutely outnumbered, they win. Now, you'd think you'd be satisfied with that if you were the Israelites. The fact that all we've got to do is remember God and we win. That's a pretty good way to be, I think. But they weren't satisfied. And they asked for the most stupid thing probably in the history of mankind. They said, God, we want a human king so we can be like the other nations. Isn't that stupid? We can be like these other nations who you're belting up. Because their kings are doing such a good job, we want to be like them. And God didn't like that. But he gave them a king. He did what they asked. And who was the king? Saul. There you go. Some people remember. But he said, I'm giving you a king, but he's not meant to be like other kings. So Saul was a king, but he was underneath God. That was the way it worked. So Saul always had to listen to someone else. There was someone more important than the king in Israel. Who was the person who was more important than the king in Israel? It was the prophet, Samuel, who spoke for God. Those who said, God, you're sort of right. <laughs> but the rule was, Saul, you're the king. You can lead the armies into, into battle, but only once Samuel's told you what I want you to do. So that was the way it was meant to work for Israel. So Saul was anointed the king or the Messiah, or the Christ, which means the anointed one. That was his title. And for, things went, for a while, things went well. Saul listened to God. Saul won great victories, and everything was going great. But then Saul threw it all away. He sort of believed his own press. He thought, hang on, I'm winning all these victories. I'm doing pretty well. And so he stopped listening to God and thought he could do it himself. And so God withdraws his favor from Saul. And God sends Samuel to anoint a new king. Now, Saul was everything you expected a king to be. He was about this tall. He was built like this. You know, he was the most handsome man in all of Israel, all the stuff you expect a king on a television series to be. But God says, for this new anointed one, go and find this obscure youngest son, shepherd boy, from the tribe of Judah. And so David is anointed to be king. So what you had then is a king in power, Saul, and a king in waiting, David. And that always works well, doesn't it? Just ask Kevin and Julia or Malcolm and Tony how that goes. And so this is what you've got. And so the whole second half of the book of 1 Samuel is this power struggle between Saul and David. Uh, and what with David, he was sort of like the popular leader. Over time, he grew into this incredible military ruler. It started as a teenager when he defeated Goliath. But after that, he won other battles. And so people loved David. 
But David would never undercut Saul. Even though God had anointed him and told him he'd be the king, he would never undercut Saul. While ever Saul was on the throne, David would not take power. But even so, Saul's jealousy got too much. And so in the second half of 1 Samuel, it's the story of Saul chasing David and trying to kill him and doing some horrible things, killing anyone basically who supported David and David running for his life. And several times, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. Remember the most famous one where Saul goes into the cave? I love the way the Bible is really earthy and doesn't hide. You know why Saul went to the cave? To relieve himself. And while he's there relieving himself, David's there in the cave. And he thinks, here's my chest, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't kill Saul. Several times he has the opportunity, but he won't do it because Saul was God's anointed even if he didn't deserve that title anymore. And David said, I will not act against him. It's not up to me to remove God's anointed. That's God's business, not mine. But then finally, at the end of 1 Samuel, we're nearly there in 2 Samuel now, there are these two great battles. And so on the one hand, David and his supporters are fighting against the Amalekites and they win an incredible victory, protecting Israel from one of their worst enemies. But at the same time, Saul and most of the armies of Israel are fighting against the Philistines and things didn't go as well there. But the thing is, David doesn't know about that. He knows Saul's having a fight, but he doesn't know how it's gone. But what happened was that Saul and all his sons, including Jonathan, who was David's best friend, they're overrun and with all his sons dead around him and to avoid being killed by a dirty Philistine... Saul kills himself, literally falls on his sword and commits suicide. Is this a ripping story or what? You know, why do you waste your time with these TV shows when you could be reading the Bible? But anyway, that's where 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 1 starts. So come with me. And if you don't have a Bible, you really do need to have one open in front of you because I'm going to be looking at parts that we didn't read before. So whack up your hand so you can open it up and be following along with me and Brendan will run you a copy. So if you don't have a Bible, put up your hand now. And we'll get you one. But we start with 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, after the death of Saul. And they are like the key words. That's the pivotal moment. After the death of Saul. So now with Saul's death, we expect David to be excited. So like Malcolm or Julia when their time came. You know, oh good, Tony's out of the way. I can be prime minister. My, My destiny is here. Everything I've worked for all these years, now at last, they'll make me king. But that's not quite what happens. Because as we pick up the story, David doesn't know about Saul's death yet. He's at a place called Ziklag, sort of licking his wounds and recovering from the fight he was in. There was no internet or radio news. And this man stumbles into the camp with torn clothes and and dust on his head. And he tells David, he says, I have escaped from the battle between Saul and the Philistines. So this man has come from Saul. Now remember, David doesn't know what happened. So straight away, David says, we'll look at verse 4 there. He says, what was the outcome? Tell me. You you can sort of hear, you can read in it. He wants to know. And he's not wishing Saul bad. He he really wants to know what was the outcome. And so the man tells him, he says, the Israelite troops, they ran away or they were killed. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are now dead. Now, you get the impression at this point that this fellow thinks, 
I'm telling you what you want to hear. He thinks I'm bringing David good news. I mean, politically he's saying, your enemy is dead. Now you're the king. And you notice how it says that he came to David and paid homage to him. He bowed down to him. He's saying, you are the king and I'm the first person who's recognizing it. And he can almost, he's not going to say it, but he's like, so what are you going to do for me? Saying is, I brought you this good news. But if he's after a reward from David, he's going to be disappointed. Because David doesn't jump up and celebrate. He starts asking questions. And it seems like there was something that didn't sound right to David. Something that created suspicion in his mind that made him think, what's, what's going on here? In later chapters, when David talks more about this, he suggests it was the fact this fellow just seemed too happy about the death of Israelites. But whatever it was, he starts asking questions. Look at verse 5. He says, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And so the man tells his story. He says, well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. That's where the battle was happening. How you just happened to be? I was just going to get the newspaper and there I was in the middle of a battle. I don't know. Uh, But anyway, there was Saul, he says, leaning on his spear and the chariots and cavalry are closing in on him. So things were dire for Saul. But then Saul saw me, this young man, and spoke to me. And look at verse 9. It says, then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I'm mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So Saul says, I want you to finish me off. So the Philistines don't get the opportunities to do it. And this brave young man, that's what he wants to be seen as, obliged. Verse 10. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm and I've brought them here to my Lord. So you can see what this fellow is claiming. He's saying, everything I've done is good. I did good for Saul. I did what he asked me to do. I put him out of his misery. I saved him from the shame of being killed by the Philistines. And I've done good for you, David. I've killed your enemy. And here is the crown that should be on your head. Here it is. Put it on now. Become the king. But there's a problem. Does anyone know what the problem is? David didn't know the problem. David couldn't have known this. But we know the man is probably lying. Because back in 1 Samuel 31, we heard what happened to Saul, and this isn't what happened to Saul. There's no mention of this young Amalekite doing all of this. What actually happened was Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him, but he wouldn't do it. And so ultimately Saul fell on his own sword He killed himself, like I said before, and then the armor bearer followed him and did the same. See, like all good lies, this one is very close to the truth. So it seems the young man must have been there. And he probably saw the opportunity to scavenge the crown and the armband. And then he thought, wow, what a chance to get in the good books of the new king. Now remember, David couldn't have known that he was lying but even so his response would have still shocked the young Amalekite to say he wasn't happy is a massive understatement look at verse 11 then David took hold of his clothes and tore them and all the men with him did the same they mourned wept and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword for Saul his son Jonathan the Lord's people and the house of Israel At this point, if you just put yourself in the Amalekite's shoes, you're thinking, this hasn't gone how I was planning it. That's not part of the plan. David doesn't rejoice, he mourns. 
And in fact, we have this whole poem, a eulogy really, from verses 17 to 27, where David mourns for Saul, for Jonathan, and for Israel. Now, you would expect David to mourn for Jonathan, if you know the story. Uh, They were best friends. If you want to understand just how good of friends they were, Jonathan had told everyone, I won't become king when Saul dies, I want David to. So Jonathan had given up his right to become king, to let David become king. So you expect David to mourn for Jonathan. So just look at how he talks about Jonathan. Jump down to verse 26. We didn't read this before. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. Do you know what's really sad is in our sex-obsessed modern world, people now write articles saying, oh, David and Jonathan must have been homosexuals to, to talk about one another this way. I think that says much more about the people writing the articles than it does about David and Jonathan. Uh, sadly, in our modern world, people think the only sort of relationship two people can have is sexual in nature. How sad is that? What this is talking about is true friendship, brother to brother. And I think one of the problems in our modern world, why we're in such a mess, is because people don't have friendships like this. We mess it up. Instead of men in particular having friends who they can actually be open and honest with and share with, in particular for Christian men to have other Christian men who will support them and challenge them and encourage them like David and Jonathan did. That's the sort of friendship they had. That's why David was grieving the loss of Jonathan. But Saul is another matter. I don't know if if when you're at school you had a nemesis. You know what I mean? The person who always beat you at everything and who always you know, it was always bullying you or that sort of thing. Well, times that by about 400 million thousand and you've got Saul to David. You know, that's how horrible he was to David. He devoted 20 years of his life to basically destroying David and yet David grieves his death. How could David do that? Well, in a sense, I think David is just acting in line with God at that point. God takes no pleasure in the death of any sinner, no matter how much it's deserved. Just look at what God says in Ezekiel 18, 32. He says, for I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Sometimes people have this picture that that God is sort of willing us to sin and wanting to judge us, wanting to judge humanity. And God takes great delight. And it's almost like God the Father is a bit annoyed that Jesus died for the sins of the world and And, and, you know, really, he'd rather judge us. That's not God. God judges sin awfully. Hell is real. God judges sin because of his righteousness. But he takes no delight in the death of a sinner. And so David knew Saul's death was God's will. And he knew Saul got what he deserved. But that didn't mean that God took pleasure in it. And it didn't mean that David should take pleasure in it. More than that, David knew that there was actually a lot to be celebrated in Saul's life. In the early years, he was a brave leader. At some points, he was a good father. He fell badly later on, but this was still a man who had done good in some senses. And David celebrates that in this poem. Uh, And that's why I think you see in the parts of David's poem about Saul, it sort of reads like a lot of eulogies you hear at funerals today. We remember what was good about a person. There's nothing to be gained by getting up and saying, actually, he was a bit of a loser. 
And really, he was horrible. You know, there is a time, you don't lie about a person, but this is sort of like a eulogy. He's saying, I'm not going to dwell on Saul's failings. I'm going to rejoice and thank God for the good things in his life. But there was much more to David's mourning than just that. Yes, he was mourning the loss of Saul. But more than that, and this is the most important thing in this chapter, more than that, he was mourning the loss of what Saul represented. That's the issue. And that brings us to this little episode from verses 13 to 16, which is where I'm going to finish us on. So let's get back to David and the young man. Because David asked him another question, verse 13. David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner, he said. I'm an Amalekite. Now remember, David has just won a battle over the Amalekites. They've just been trying to kill him for the last week. And the Amalekites were the people who had caused the start of Saul's downfall. So that's why the young man quickly says, I'm the son of a foreigner rather than I'm an Amalekite. Uh, And that's actually a technical phrase meaning I'm a refugee. I'm a resident alien. I'm, I'm... the son of an Amalekite, but, but I live in Israel. I, I'm one of you, is what he's saying. So he's saying, I'm not one of your enemies, I'm a friend. And he hopes that might mean David will treat him well. But again, he gets a rude shock. Look at verse 14. David questioned him, how is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? If you'd just been an Amalekite, you might have had an excuse because you wouldn't know that this guy is the Lord's anointed. But as a resident of Israel, you should know better. How could you ever consider that you should be able to kill God's appointed king on earth, the anointed one? And so verse 15, then David summoned one of his servants and said, come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. I think we find this incredibly harsh, don't we? I think we look at it and go, gee, that's harsh. I mean, first of all, he probably didn't actually kill him, David. He was probably lying. There's a lesson in that, isn't there? Don't lie. There you go, there's a lesson from tonight's passage. But as David says there in verse 16, he claimed he did it. He claimed he did it, so bad luck. But more than that, in his story, he claimed, I was only doing what Saul asked me to do. I was actually obeying the Lord's anointed when I killed the Lord's anointed. And more than that, David, Saul was doing bad stuff. Saul wasn't a nice guy, and I wanted you to be king, so aren't we glad we're rid of Saul? But for David, all of that was irrelevant What mattered is Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was the one chosen by God to represent him as king on earth. And only God can appoint and remove his king, his Messiah, his Christ. That's why Saul's armor bearer would not kill Saul. That's why David would not kill Saul. Even though God had promised him, you'll be king It was for God to deal with it, not David. See, David knew, and this man should have known, that how you treat the Lord's anointed is how you treat God. And this is so important. 
The Lord's anointed is God's representative on earth. So how you treat him is how you treat the God of the universe. And this is where this passage goes from being sort of an interesting story, interesting history, to incredibly relevant for every one of us and incredibly relevant for every person who lives on this earth. Because Saul and David were only ever shadows meant to point us forward to the true Lord's anointed who was to come. The Hebrew word for the Lord's anointed is Messiah. The Greek word is Christos or Christ. And we know from the New Testament, Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. Jesus is God's one and only final anointed one, the final king. And what this passage reminds us is how we respond to Jesus, the Christ, is how we respond to God. Everything hangs on our response to the Lord's anointed. Look at John three thirty-six. It says, The one who believes in the Son, the Christ, the Messiah, has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. How we respond to the Lord's anointed, to Jesus, decides everything. For those who come to the Lord's anointed in faith, with humility, repenting of our sin, he offers grace and forgiveness and eternal life. But for those who ignore him, or worse still, reject him and mock him, God's wrath remains upon them. And this young Amalekite is a sobering lesson of just that. Sometimes when I'm on the train, I don't know why all these things happen on the train. When I'm on the train, I sit there just listening to people. And I am amazed how many people you hear just saying, Jesus Christ. And I don't think they're Christians doing their Bible study. (laughs) And often I'm just sad when I hear that. I just sit there in sadness thinking, isn't that sad that people use our Lord's name in vain? As I read this passage, I thought, I pity those people. I pity those people. Because one day they will face the judgment of the Lord for mocking his anointed one. How we respond to the Lord's anointed decides everything. The big point of 2 Samuel 1 is, how will you respond to the Lord's anointed? That's the big point. Jesus offers forgiveness and mercy to anyone who comes to him in humility and in faith. But there is a day when he will return as king to deal with those who have ignored him and rejected him and even worse, those who have mocked him. It's funny, people write, write about these sort of passages and they say, isn't it amazing, Jesus is so much better than David. And they're right, but they're wrong on this. Jesus is exactly the same as David on this. Don't think of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. That's only half the picture. Jesus offers forgiveness and grace to anyone who comes to him in faith. But when he returns to judge, there will be no forgiveness. When he returns to judge, it will be awful for those who have not responded rightly to him. If you have been sitting on the fence about Jesus, if you come along here to church and you're sort of thinking, I don't know what I think about him, I want to say to you, please make up your mind. If you don't have enough information, do Christianity Explained. We'll be talking about it later on. But please make up your mind. 
It's so important. It's more important than anything else you do. Make up your mind what you think of the Lord's anointed. And for those of us who do know the Lord's anointed, well, don't we want everyone else to respond to him rightly? Isn't that right? Isn't that the obvious thing from this passage? Don't we want to tell people about him so that they can respond rightly? Finally, there's also a related second message for us in this chapter. And it's the way the young man treats the other Lord's anointed, David. So we've learned from how he treated Saul, not good. Now, how he treats David. He was smart enough to know that if David really is the Lord's anointed, then you want to be in David's good books. He was smart enough to know that. And he came and he paid homage to the Lord's anointed. But he thought he could put on a show and that would be enough to impress David. He thought he could pull the wool over the eyes of the Lord's anointed. And David saw through it. And that's just a reminder to us. We want to trust and we want to love and we want to serve the true Lord's anointed, Jesus. But you cannot fool the Lord's anointed. Jesus sees the realities of your heart. Jesus does not want people who put on a show of paying him homage. Jesus wants people with an authentic trust and faith in him. And Jesus doesn't want Pharisees who put on a show of godliness for other Christians at church. Jesus wants people who genuinely repent of their sin and seek to live for him. See, Christians for 2,000 years, well, not Christians, actually, people for 2,000 years have been putting on a show and fooling one another. And I'm the easiest person to fool of them all because I want you to believe in Jesus. Ministers, we're all fools. Wouldn't do this job if you weren't. You can even fool yourself. But Jesus sees right into the depths of our hearts and our souls. He sees everything. And he says, I want you to genuinely trust me and genuinely repent of your sin and genuinely seek to live for me. And what he longs to see is genuine, heartfelt faith and trust and homage to him. Not a show, but genuine. Genuine recognition of the sin in our lives and a genuine desire to turn away from it. That's what Jesus longs to see in those who would follow him, the true Lord's anointed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful riches of your word, for the way all scripture points to Christ. And we pray for us that we would not be like this young Amalekite. Instead, we pray that we would truly honour the Lord's anointed by doing what he calls us to do, coming to him in genuine heartfelt faith and repentance not putting on a show, not trying to impress him, but instead genuinely turning away from our sin and trusting in him for the forgiveness only he can offer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.